Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the podcast with me, Steve Richards. I hope some of you will be able to see the live version of this, the show in Edinburgh, 14 days, I think it is, August the 12th to August the 24th. Tickets on sale now at the Edinburgh Fringe website. And what a lot we're going to explore there. So much, I think, that the show's going to be different every day as we look at the characters shaping this drama. It's quite hard to work out where to begin with this podcast. Politics is so fast-moving. The last time I did it, the Tory leadership contest was still in play. Jeremy Hunt was Foreign Secretary. And now he's on a beach, I think, somewhere in Portugal, wondering quite how to play things in the future. But in a way, that is a sort of peripheral sidebar compared with the epic drama being played out in number 10. During the cabinet reshuffle, brutally, ruthlessly carried out, but with very effective speed, I was reminded when Harold Macmillan, went about a brutal cabinet reshuffle, of course, known as the Night of the Long Knives. Harold Wilson, then leader of the opposition, popped up to say, I see the Prime Minister has sacked half his cabinet, the wrong half. And in that soundbite, Wilson made people laugh and uh, made Harold Macmillan, who was not a particularly efficient butcher, seem funny. The power of wit in politics, I'm sure I've reflected in these podcasts before, is overlooked often these days. And indeed, one of Johnson's skill is the wrong word, but one of his political weapons is a capacity to make people laugh. They're not quite sure whether they're laughing at him or with him in his case, but when they laugh with him and know they are laughing with him, it puts him in a powerful position, wit. And Wilson's soundbite has been remembered over the decades. I know Jeremy Corbyn gave an interview on the day Boris Johnson became Prime Minister, but I can't remember a word he said. He doesn't use wit or frame arguments in a way that make people see politics as he would like them to see it. We'll come on to him in a moment. But first of all, Boris Johnson. What I think is interesting is the ideological self-confidence of some on the right. It is, of course, much easier to be self-confident when you've got quite a few newspapers supporting you and you have a cause to which um, the newspapers and you can dance as one, in this case, Brexit. What a contrast, for example, to the early days, say, of New Labour in 1997. Tony Blair, Gordon Brown and others came in with a landslide majority, record-breaking election victory. But they moved so cautiously, so worried if um, they put a foot out of step that might alienate, say, Rupert Murdoch's newspapers. Now, in one respect, this hyper caution framed and fueled by all those years in opposition and the huge election defeats of the 80s and 1992 helped them. They were so alert to problems in the early days anyway that it was quite hard for the opposition to get any space at all. But at the same time it could lead to a kind of curious paralysis. I remember having a cup of tea with uh, Tony Blair 
quite early on, it was in his first year, he was about 40 points ahead in the opinion polls. His new leader of the opposition, William Hague, was in terrible trouble. And during this cup of tea, one of his advisers came rushing in to say, in a kind of slightly panic-stricken way, Tony, uh, William Hague has changed his policy on rural post offices. And all hell broke loose, people rushing around, have we got a response out, what is our response, and all this kind of thing. There was a caution which verged at times on a kind of paralysis. As one new Labour cabinet minister put it to me in those early years, we've hit the ground reviewing. Anything contentious, no decision was taken, a review would take place, and, and from that things might or might not happen. Contrast this with Johnson or indeed Cameron in 2010. Johnson has no majority. He's been elected by a very small party membership. But off he went at the speed of sound, basically reforming the Brexit campaign that he was involved with, bringing in all those who were loyal to him and all those loyal to that cause in the referendum, from Dominic Cummings behind the scenes to Dominic Raab, who resigned as Brexit secretary over Theresa May's withdrawal agreement. All back. And there he was outside number 10, most incoming prime ministers, even when they've won a general election, agonise over words to the point of banality, where they focus on the need to bring the country together, unity, unity, unity. He came up and said, we're out of the European Union on October the 31st, an unyielding message delivered with determination and a team formed to make sure that it is delivered. And Cameron, in a way, did the same thing. Although he formed a coalition with the Liberal Democrats, he pursued a economic policy of turbocharged Thatcherism, real-term spending cuts imposed with absolute resolution, supported with spectacular naivety and ideological confusion by Nick Clegg, and most of the public service reform agenda was put through as well, and Cameron in that early phase did some astonishing things, the fixed-term parliament that's changed everything, really, in terms of the rhythms of electoral politics. In that early phase, it's forgotten now, but the coalition passed an act agreeing that any future EU treaty would require a referendum. It was their early attempt to appease their Eurosceptics. Of course, as ever, they fed them something and it was nowhere near enough. But that in itself probably meant that the UK would have left the European Union under Cameron at some point, because it's quite hard to see how a referendum on a treaty would be won. The NHS reforms, the education reforms, all driven at the speed of sound, a government of the radical right, even though the Conservatives had won no majority. And here we are again, Boris Johnson, Dominic Raab, Priti Patel. They are all in their Michael Gove running no-deal arrangements. And yet, and this is what makes the current situation so astonishing, there is this dramatic juxtaposition with a House of Commons where no deal, at least, has no majority. We know that because there have been votes on no deal and a majority has voted against it. 
So, on the back benches, you have now a former Chancellor, Philip Hammond, who, in spite of himself, has become a rebel. In my shows, I describe him as England's Che Guevara, with teenagers having posters of him all over their walls, pro-European teenagers having posters of Hammond. He's there, Rory Stewart, the psychedelic Tory of wide appeal. And typically of him, he tweeted recently, that's it for three weeks, I'm going for a walk. And I bet it's probably a walk around the moon or something. He never does things in small measures. These are, in their different ways, formidable opponents. David Gork is another. All on the back benches, fiercely opposed to no deal. And so there is the Johnson government, Gove meeting his team every day to prepare for no deal. Sajid Javid, the Chancellor, saying, I'll give you whatever money it costs to prepare for no deal. When it comes to no deal, Conservatives are big spenders. They might be reluctant to spend on other issues, and certainly in the Osborne era, were the first real-time spending cutters for a long, long time. Thatcher never cut in real terms. But here they are, quite happy to spend on this no deal Brexit. And yet, even this vivid juxtaposition is nuanced. So, for example, one of the many weaknesses of Johnson's opponents is that they themselves are deeply divided, and that fragmentation might prove fatal to their cause. We're not dealing with epic politicians here, and it might fragment. So, for example, there are some no-deal rebels like Oliver Lepwin, Hammonds and other, actually, to some extent, David Gork, Rory Stewart. They are against referendum, of which Remain can be one of the options. They want a deal. They're part of those who are against no deal, but they want a deal. They are in talks with Keir Starmer and other Labour figures who want a referendum, and they would campaign for Remain. Now, that is quite a big difference. That puts Keir Starmer with the Lib Dems and the SNP, but the new Lib Dem leader, Jo Swinson, has said that she wouldn't work with a Corbyn-led Labour leadership. But she will probably have to if she wants to stop this no deal from going through. There were, amongst some commentators who described themselves as moderates or centrists, some excitement with Joe Swinson's election. And, of course, for Lib Dems, it's exciting. They've got a new leader. I think the commentators have got overexcited several times now without enough evidence to sort of justify their overexcitement. They got excited with the launch of Change UK and they got excited with the election of Joe Swinson. But the reality and the parliamentary reality is that the Lib Dems have very few MPs. The SNP have many more. And so there is a limit to their leverage in the House of Commons where this could well be decided. And if, a big if, there's a general election in September or October, a lot of the anti-Brexit Corbyn haters will have a big decision to make because in reality there will only be one alternative governing party to the Conservatives in a September-October election and that's the Labour Party, whether you like it or not. It was the same with the rise of the SDP by 1983 and 1987. It was clear that it would either be a Conservative government or a Labour-led 
government. But because a lot of people voted for the SDP Liberal Alliance in 83 and 87, the non-Tory vote was split and Margaret Thatcher won two huge landslides. And one way of guaranteeing a Brexit of Boris Johnson's choosing, if we're in huge if territory here, if you were to call an early election, is for the Remain vote to be fragmented. For Corbyn hater Remainers to vote for the Lib Dems wherever they live, including in areas where Labour is second to the Tories, it will let the Tories in. So it is much more complicated, I think, that all this is unequivocally good news for the Lib Dems because they are unequivocal Remainers. They are not going to be the biggest governing party after a September or October election. Boris Johnson has said unequivocally that there won't be such an early election. And I believe that's what he feels at the moment. Theresa May used to say the same thing early on when she was walking on water in that sort of period of ancient history, i.e. the first nine months of her leadership. She used to constantly say that I can't see the case for an election, there won't be an election until she decided she would call one. And it could be that Boris Johnson is determined that there won't be one until he has delivered on Brexit, but might still succumb to that temptation in September or October. But for now, I believe him when he says he has no intention of calling one until after Brexit. But that brings us back to that great dramatic juxtaposition. How can he get a no deal through this House of Commons? Can the House of Commons stop it? Because although the forces of opposition against the immensely powerful number 10 machine and the propaganda it's going to pump out over the summer, although these forces are fragmented, disagreeing on whether there should be a referendum, disagreeing on whether Remain should be considered as a possibility, but they are all united against no deal. They do all agree no deal will be a catastrophe. And even those Labour MPs who feel that they are obliged to back some form of Brexit because their constituents want it, a form of timid delegatory role, really, you know, that, that's what they want, so that's what I'm going to support. Even they, in most cases, are against no deal. So if the Commons acquires, say, executive control, or if the Commons decides they will do anything to stop no deal, those forces could unite. Now, it might be anyway, in some nightmarish legal battle, Johnson insists that Article 50 is the legal position, and the legal position is that Britain leaves on October the 31st with or without a deal. But even there, I think there is a sort of ambiguity in the ranks of this new, seemingly unyielding machine. Michael Gove, now in charge of no-deal preparations, it's worth reading a speech he gave to the NFU annual conference in Birmingham, and I think it was March or April of uh, this year, and he acknowledged in considerable detail the real dangers of no-deal, he had spoken, I know, because they told me to NFU leaders who are very powerful advocates of no deal, really genuinely fearing it would wipe out the farming sector, and gave them the impression he kind of agreed with them. 
and that they formed the impression that his period as environment secretary made him pretty determined that his Brexit route, as far as he was concerned, must include a deal. Well, he's now in charge of no deal. But I bet he's doing it with a degree of ambiguity. And if you listen to Johnson himself, he says all the time that he wants a deal. And I think he's got a theory, which will probably prove to be wrong, that by hyping up the possibility of no deal, he will get a deal that the EU will succumb. I think that is unlikely, and I don't think they will give much ground over Ireland, nor should they. They have a a responsibility to protect one of the EU members, not to help the EU member that's leaving. And, uh, you know, but the, the consequences will be nightmarish for them as it will be for the UK, because there will be, for a start, a border. There would have to be a border in Ireland again, amongst many other things. So it is both vivid and clear, this great divide between an executive planning for at least no deal and a House of Commons where a majority thinks it would be pretty disastrous. And frankly, trying to work out what the heck might happen is a fool's game. We uh, did a, a presented a week in Westminster program at the weekend. We did it live because we thought it was so fast moving, anything could happen. There's no point pre-recording. And had a discussion with three brilliant columnists, Peter O'Born, Anushka Astana and Ian Martin, and it was during that it was very clear that everybody all of us were kind of navigating through a great deal of fog in trying to work out what the heck will happen this autumn what is clear is very unusually for a prime minister boris johnson has given himself no wriggle room it seems to me that if he doesn't get the uk out by october the 31st all his authority will have gone And the discontent amongst some of the so-called ERG group, uh, you know, Steve Baker, who turned down the chance of being Brexit minister, I don't blame him, and Marc Francois, these people are not going to be sentimental because it's Boris. They will be apoplectic. But he, he has said that that is his cause between now and October the 31st. So he is under almost unyielding pressure, unqualified pressure to do it by October the 31st, somehow or other. But in the meantime, and this happened to May to some extent, because she always put in, remember, better no deal than a bad deal, one of her meaningless phrases, because what's a bad deal? And in the end, after her meetings with business leaders, pleading with her not to have a no deal because they would lose all the supply chains delivering parts across Europe speedily without barriers. The meetings with farmers like Michael Gove. When she went to Northern Ireland, I'm told she came back absolutely convinced that no deal would be a disaster. When she went up to Scotland, she formed a view that Scottish independence, uh, the case would be fueled by no deal. So she became, in the end, someone who did believe that no deal would be bad. By the way, it'd be interesting to see how she votes if there is a vote on no deal in the autumn. But Johnson, who is smart enough to listen to these things, will be hearing exactly from these same people over the next few weeks. Now, maybe he's given himself no space to listen. But if he does, he will return from these engagements with business, with various 
community business leaders in Northern Ireland with Ruth Davidson in Scotland. Those two, it's, well, that's not going to be a love-in. They met on Monday and they'll no doubt meet again. Nicholas Sturgeon, he'll come back, I think, with a sense that a deal is his way through this if he wants Britain out by October the 31st. And yet he has hemmed himself in as to the nature of that deal. And he's got a cabinet, some of whom resigned over the withdrawal agreement. So the opportunity to sort of change a full stop there, a comma here, is not available to him, even if he wanted to take it. It's going to be an astonishing September, October, November, and of course, frankly, forever. You know, this is not going to, if it's no deal, this issue will be at the centre of British politics for years and years to come. The consequences being played out, the nature of the relationship with the European Union as Britain negotiates from the chaotic outside. On it goes. So um, I hope you have a few laughs in um, August because it's going to be, it's the only thing we all agreed on this week in Westminster, it's going to be an epic autumn of politics even if the shape of the drama remains very hazy at this point anyway i hope some of you can come and work this through it's a kind of form of political therapy these shows at the edinburgh festival also back in london i'm doing one at uh, king's place on september the 11th by which time politics will have again moved on parliament would be back we're at the edge of the party conference season and then another one on october the 31st the edge of history that day that that date is going to be repeated constantly over the next few months so hope to see you in edinburgh or london or somewhere and yeah try and get a rest thanks so much for listening (laughs) 